This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. No doubt by now, if you consume any sort of media whatsoever, whether you watch the news on the television or whether you read it, whether you have conversations online and social media, you have no doubt seen the leak from the Supreme Court of Justice Samuel Alito's opinion on the case before the Supreme Court on abortion that looks to be overturning Roe versus Wade. Uh, you've seen this, you've heard, uh, and maybe even engaged in conversations around it, which can be quite passionate as people uh, on either side of this issue have some very firmly held beliefs and and v- very rehearsed arguments as this has been something that's been kind of at the center of national discourse for a number of years. It's important to say that this decision is not yet final, uh, but it is pending. And if the leak is to be believed, which all all sources seem to point to it being accurate, uh, and assuming that no one changes their mind on the court, uh, then this is something that's going to be happening in the very near future. Now, uh, I've spent a number of years in the pro-life movement. I was part of... Um, I was the director of Respect Life Office at the Diocese of Tulsa, uh, ran a number of 40 Days for Life campaigns and the Tulsa March for Life, and I have some very strong thoughts on on this. But I still, uh, when it first came out, I avoided talking about it on air because, first of all, I knew it was just going to be noise because there's so much discussion going on around it. I wanted to take some time to lay the groundwork, which we did last week, as we revisited a conversation we had with Joe Heschmeyer talking about what do we owe to one another in times of disagreement? How do we respond to one another? Keeping in mind that, as as uh, Paul says in Ephesians, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, right? Our enemy is not the person on the other side of the argument. And so we talked about trying to win the person instead of winning the argument. Uh, with that groundwork laid, now I want to spend some time to look at what that looks like in light of this discussion as we talk about, uh, hopefully, the end of Roe versus Wade and, and what is still left to find the end of abortion. So today, to have this conversation, we're joined by Dr. Charlie Camosi. He's a professor in the Medical Humanities Department at Creighton University Health Sciences in Phoenix. He's a fellow in the Moral Theology, uh, in Moral Theology at St. Joseph Seminary in New York, He's written numerous books specifically regarding medical ethics and specifically regarding abortion, as he's written Resisting the Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People, and Beyond the Abortion Wars, A Way Forward for a New Generation, really ahead of your time in that work. Uh, And we've talked about both of those in our archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Look for his name, click it, and there you can find episodes where we talk about each of those books. And of course, you can buy those books wherever fine books are sold. Charlie, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me on again. So I am noticing a number of of things in this discussion. The first thing that I noticed is almost immediately everyone retreated to their uh, their their trenches, as it were. There's these arguments that have been thrown back and forth um, on the on the pro-choice side. It's about bodily autonomy. On the pro-life side, it's about um, humanity, personhood, 
human dignity, right? So the problem is, is that the arguments never get to a place where they're moving anything. And that's not to say that we should be moving the position that that life is important and that life has dignity, but there does seem to be a need for us to be able to listen so that we can respond in a way that can be heard. Whereas right now we're just kind of shouting into the void. So talk to me about how do we get from this place to a place that actually makes a difference? Well, first of all, thank you for taking a week or two before engaging this after the league came out. I think it's important to kind of, um, see where we are, see where the culture is, um, see how best we can uh, love one another as Christ has loved us, as the gospel yesterday said, uh, at least on the day we're filming or recording this. Um, I think the first thing it's important to note is that so many of these structures in which we have these conversations, which shape the way we have these conversations, are designed precisely to not allow us to have what you just described, right? A actual encounter across difference. Quite the opposite, in fact. They're designed, these algorithms, especially on social media, are designed to keep our attention, keep us scrolling, keep us engaged. And what the social scientists of human nature have found, unsurprisingly, is that the best way to do that is to keep us angry, right? Keep us against one another, keep us defining each other, uh, the other by opposition rather than by love or by encounter which of course is what we're called to do as Christians. We're called even to explicitly love our enemies, including on this these sets of issues. So maybe that's the first thing I would say is, let's be aware of how the structures in which we have the conversations are pushing it. And then maybe we can go beyond that and say, you know, there's more than just two sides. I like to tell my medical ethics students there are about 17 sides to the abortion debate. The, anybody that's read my book, Beyond the Abortion Wars, knows that. Um, so we need to get, the, I, mean, I guess I'll, I'll leave this long point here. I guess we need to get beyond the kind of us versus them, right versus left, life versus choice model for, for having these conversations. And that can be really difficult because this is a deeply felt, more than just a deeply believed, it's a deeply felt issue. And so we get obviously a little bit invested in that. And we don't, we don't, we don't want to take this step back. We want to, we feel like we have to um, stand up for the dignity of those who can't speak for themselves. And, and so there is kind of no backing down or no taking stock. It, it seems like the issue that we just kind of, we have rehearsed. We know the answers. This is a life we're talking about. And it can be really easy. And I've even seen this out um, when we were doing 40 Days for Life. Uh, there were other people who were not associated with 40 Days for Life who would come up. And they've been protesting at the abortion clinic for uh, for decades. And for them, there was a, an anger that was directed towards the clinic because they felt kinship with those who were losing their lives and they didn't see any progress. And so it's really easy for us to get, I think, over inflamed. And even the use of the term over inflamed is going to get some folks over inflamed um, <laughs> in a way that over inflamed in the sense that it no longer serves the purpose of making a difference. It only serves the purpose of making a stand. Right. And, and over inflamed is obviously something to avoid, but 
just good old fashioned anger in the face of injustice is something our Lord um, demonstrated on multiple occasions himself. So it's fine to be angry. It's fine to respond. It's good in some in some circumstances to respond to fundamental injustice with anger. But if we're going to reach out to those who feel differently about this, if and and this is at the heart of um, what we need to, to keep in mind here, uh, the, if this leaked opinion, and by the way, I was in high school when 1992 came around and and we we thought Planned Parenthood versus Casey would be the end of abortion as well, or the end of Roe versus Wade as well. So let's not count our chickens here. But if the if the leaked opinion ends up something like the leaked opinion ends up being the opinion and Roe goes and Casey go away, in some ways this is just the end of the beginning. Or I, I've been I've been trying to think about it as um, you know how do I feel about this? How do many of us feel? I think we feel almost like um, analogously to if you get into accepted into college or if you get cast in a school play or if you make make a sports team it's like you've create you've now reached um the conditions for the possibility of achieving your goal but there's so much more work to be done right all this does is send things back to the states i live in new jersey i work in new york um uh the these two states are going to be not only so permissive of abortion for citizens of the states of New York and New Jersey, we're going to be, we're going to be welcoming people from other states to have abortions here Mm -hmm. from Pennsylvania and other, other places that might have some significant restrictions. So, so we have a gargantuan uh, task ahead of us. Now, what's the best way to go about this? Is it to, get over inflamed and, you know, throw out all kinds of vitriol on social media. And again, there is a place for being very clear about prenatal justice on social media. I try to be, but, but what, what is going to actually um, tap into the minds and hearts of people? That's, that's where I think we really need to be right now. Yeah. You bring this up. I've seen a number of people who are rejoicing rightly so that, that Roe may be going away, but they don't seem to have an idea for what to do next. Um, and there is going to be a next, even in those states that, that do uh, put a ban on abortion. One of the things that I've seen um, is some people having a conversation about criminalization of abortion and, and not just criminalization in terms of, oh, the doctor, uh, who who performed this thing that was no longer allowed to be performed, but in terms of the woman seeking an abortion. And this is a really touchy area because in my experience working in the pro-life movement, most of the most, the, the vast majority of the women who seek an abortion do so at the behest of someone else or feel like they have absolutely no choice in the matter at all. Uh, and so to then go and criminalize that seems to be a bridge too far. And we who have been all united in ending abortion have to be mindful of what bandwagon we jump on now that it is potential, a potential reality. That's right. And, and you said it very well just now. What, and one of the things I'm at pains to talk about in Beyond Abortion Wars and in indeed all medical ethics and ethics uh, questions is the distinction, the important distinction between making a public policy, which involves a prudential judgment and a moral 
uh, theory or judgment. So going all the way back to St. Thomas Aquinas, he had, at least in my world, the most famous example of this. He thought that any sex outside of marriage, like Orthodox Catholics do, um, is an intrinsically evil act and should never be done. However, he didn't favor um, making prostitution illegal in his day because of complicated reasons relating to the prudential judgment about what that would mean. Would it actually stop prostitution? Would it hurt women who are, who are um, working in this way? Um, and a host of other factors. Now, he might have been right or wrong about that, but the principle is something that uh, is very important in Catholic um, thought, which is you don't just jump from moral principle to public policy. Now, let me be a thousand percent clear about this. I think all prenatal children from fertilization on need equal protection of the law. They need to be persons under the constitution. That's what justice requires. Once you go from that though, there's a, there's a really complicated um, set of questions to ask about what the abortion policy should be. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally think that um, we should have criminal pe- penalties for, for doctors. Um, uh, the kinds of situations that you just described don't, almost never apply to them, but they do apply to women. So you mentioned um, coercion, you mentioned having abortions that they don't want to have. In fact, in the Bronx, where I've taught for the last 14 years, I no longer teach at Fordham, but I've taught for the last 14 years at Fordham in the Bronx, the abortion rate hovers between 45 and 50% of all pregnancies in the Bronx. Deeply poor area, also deeply pro-life area, the um, and religious area. The the statistics all show that those who make under $40,000 a year are some of the most pro-life people we have in this country. So the diabolical thing going on in the Bronx is people that don't want to have abortions, that think they're morally wrong, are having abortions at almost one out of every two pregnancies. Mm. What is going on there? There's a tremendous amount going on there, including poverty, but also including being forced. There's also high, high rates everywhere, but especially in the Bronx, of intimate partner violence, where women feel like they're going to get the crap kicked out of them if they don't have the abortion that their male husband or partner wants them to get. And so when we think about criminalization, especially of women, we absolutely have to think about these structural uh, questions, these structural issues. And in my mind, it it pushes very dramatically against any kind of criminalization of women um, when it comes to making public policy. I also saw a statistic recently that uh, a significant uh, percentage of those who are seeking abortion already have other children. And this is a matter of feeling like they have to choose between uh, being able to provide for their, their, their born children and being able to have this unborn child. And so there are things that we can do and that we can advocate for uh, as Catholics that will remove the hurdle for those people entirely. And I think that we have to be mindful of, and this is what I, what I do when I enter into an argument is what kind of, what kind of objections and hurdles can I remove um, that, that make this an easier discussion? And I think that that's something that we have to be focused on and mindful of as well. I like to tell uh, folks who ask about my pro-life commitments that I'm in the baby saving business and I don't care how the babies are saved. So um it can be from banning abortion. Those who say that banning abortion doesn't save babies' lives are just wrong on the, on the face of it. But it's also a mistake to just ignore what you just said, right? That 
if we focus on the demand side or what is driving abortion demand um, and not just supply, um, we can save babies' lives too. And we get the added benefit of being able to have common ground across difference because even those who disagree with us about equal protection of the law for prenatal children, and I think those people who oppose that should be defeated politically and we should have equal protection of the law for prenatal children, we can still work with those very same people and think about how um, to dial down intimate partner violence, to think about what it would mean to have paid family leave for a woman who, as you mentioned, already has children in most circumstances where she has an abortion or help with childcare uh, in situations where she already has children. So I think there, I know there's just tremendous common ground to be had. That's another focus of my book, Beyond the Abortion Wars. There's tremendous common ground to be had, especially on the demand side of this. I've seen a number of, of memes. We're talking about people responding on social media who, who will say, well, if life begins at fertilization, then, um, then child support should start then too. And as if they've won an argument and, and most of the people that I see respond are saying, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. And I agree. Good job. Yeah, I've seen some meme funny. Oh, I think they're funny memes in response um, with the with the uh, the portrait, the side portrait figure of the of the very masculine looking man saying, "Your terms are acceptable, right?" Like uh, you know, um, your terms are not only acceptable; they're what we want. Let's do it, right? Like they're not even terms. Like we share this value, we share this goal. Let's do it. Of course, we should do it. So you mentioned, and we've we've begun talking about this is just the beginning um states are going to have it's going to be really a whole patchwork now of different states having different standards and all of the things that come along with that what are some practical steps before we even get into um the decision actually being announced what are some things we can do now to begin preparing for what comes next well, there's a number of initiatives that are um, that were already in place, but that are starting to gain steam. I just saw that um, Carter Sneed uh, from the Ethics Center at um, his Ethics Center at Notre Dame is starting a a um, initiative called Women and Children First, in which they're going to work very very explicitly on the demand side here to try to support women in difficult circumstances. I've seen um, the Ethics and Public Policy Center not known at all for its um, sort of uh, social justice, uh, social supports kind of advocacy to make a hard turn towards those very programs like paid family leave, like um, help with childcare, like increased um, tax benefits for those who have children, tax credits for those who have children. Um, so there is a movement happening. It's in fact, it's so interesting, isn't it, to see the kind of um, uh, political realignment happening right before our very eyes. You and I are of an age, we probably remember, you know, a, a conservative party or the so-called right being very, um, you know, libertarian in its approach, small government, et cetera. But there's a major part of the conservative right now, pro-life right, who I don't identify with, by the way, but I find very interesting moving in this direction, right? To saying, yes, let's have um, either at the state level or the federal level or both in, increase support. 
So I think there is one 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 major thing one can do is is support those candidates and support those groups who are moving in this direction. In in many ways, it's going to be a very structural question, like at the state and the federal level. Are we going to put the systems and supports in place for women at a structural level? But 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 that won't be enough, right? We need the local. We need the um, to use a, a term from Catholic social teaching, we need to focus on subsidiarity, right? We mm-hmm. need to focus on those groups who are closest to the people. And often those are church groups. So um, we should have every single parish that's available um, that has the resources to do it, to make themselves available to women in difficult circumstances. Sorry to make this a, a New York centric thing, but the sisters of life in New York are just fa- fantastic examples of this, right? They've made their whole mission in life basically to house women at risk for abortion and to care for them and care for their children. Um, now they should not be unique. They kind of are, um, but they should not be unique. We, sh- we should all at the local level be all in when it comes to that kind of ministry. I hear some of the objections already to this idea of, of public policy. A lot of people will say, well, it needs to be a, a privately organized thing because they would see maybe uh, some sense of socialism in social medicine or in the, as you mentioned, child tax credits or in these kinds of things which take government money and put it towards uh, private individuals. But at the same time, we see that that same kind of funding for our libraries, for our public schools, for uh, any number of programs that these are things that we, taxes that we provide to the government and then the government uses to the benefit of the common good. And if the common good is served by caring for women in such a way that it removes the need for abortion, then why wouldn't we do that? That's right. I think at a certain point, um, and I've, I've found, and you and I have talked about this in the past, I believe, at a certain point, one has to decide as a pro-lifer what one values more, right? A kind of fealty to a small government orthodoxy or trying to save the lives of babies, support women in so doing, right? Which is more important to you? I mean, honest question. Um, I am. I don't come from that sort of uh, maybe old fusionism of the right, which included libertarians kind of pushing in this direction. But let me just give you one example where the pro-life movement pushed back on this in a way that I thought was extremely helpful. I don't know if you or your listeners remember the big debate in 2017 when they Republicans got a, got um, in control of government and they were going to mm-hmm. remake the tax code and tax system. And they didn't want to pick winners and losers, right? It was still the kind of Paul Ryan kind of small government. Government needs to stay out of making these value judgments type thing. And they wanted to get rid of so many different tax benefits, including a tax benefit, which is very near and dear to my heart as an adoptive father of three. The adoption tax benefit was going to go away because that's what that's what they were going to consider to be, again, picking winners and losers or government, you know, getting on the side of certain things. Um, thank God the pro-life movement pushed back so hard against this mm-hmm. and got the t- child tax credits for um, the adoption tax credits back into the back into the bill. And they also got uh, very extended. Mar- Marco Rubio pushed at the 11th hour to get an even higher uh, child tax credits uh, in for explicitly pro-life reasons. So, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I don't want, I'm not a socialist. I don't think we need, um, we shouldn't have a Catholic social teaching doesn't allow for a massive top down bureaucracy that doesn't get to the, to the local right. uh, level and doesn't respect local differences. But 
there's a very happy medium that Catholic social teaching uh, insists on, which is you need to get to the um, lowest level uh, possible um, while while getting to the highest level necessary to affect justice. And if if there are women out there who already have children who feel like they need to choose between having a child and putting bread on the table for their um, for their already born children, that is a fundamental injustice, and it ought to be corrected. I think we also have to be aware that our our Catholic faith, and we've talked about this many times, does not line up with a red-blue dichotomy. In fact, you you have a whole series on this with New City Press, the Magenta series that has books and webinars and other things, trying to find that that purple middle. Um, but even even the purple, uh, Catholicism is much older and much more complex than current political realities allow for. So how do we account for present realities um, and then also allow ourselves to think outside of our current confined box into the historic understanding of the Catholic faith when it comes to these kinds of issues? Well, it's it's certainly uh, right to say that if you go all the way back to the ancient world, um, though there was, of course, the, the Roman Empire. Yes. Um, that, you know, something like the United States would be hard to envision. Um, but Catholic social teaching really comes into its own in the 19th century with Rerum Navarum and, mm-hmm. and, and Leo Thirteenth, who in fact had the United States, yeah. um, at least as part of his consideration in thinking about like the right to unionize and child labor and all that. So, um, you know, putting limits on the free market uh, while not being socialist or communist, of course, explicitly not being that, um, was, it was just an essential part of what Catholic social teaching is. And I can't underscore enough the, this idea that our political categories, right versus left, red versus blue, life versus choice, just absolutely don't fit into a Catholic uh, vision at all. That's what I'm trying to get with the magenta thing. It's it's not it's not just like half halfway or milk toast or like the mushy middle or something. I picked magenta because it's it is between red and blue on the color wheel, but it's also the color bishops wear. It's also this really bright, bold color. And uh, the tagline we're using as kind of like our our motto is bold Christian voices healing divides. Um, so it's, again, this is not milk toast. It's not mushy middle. This is the beauty, the boldness the brightness of, of, of the beauty of Catholic uh, thought of Catholic tradition. And I think we need to go in this explicitly with this idea that we're expecting to be strangers in a strange land, pilgrims, right? A pilgrim people. We don't belong to the world. We're in the world, but not of it. And so we should expect not to fit into any of these categories. We're talking today with Dr. Charlie Camosi, professor in the medical humanities department at Creighton University of Health Sciences in Phoenix and a fellow in moral theology at St. Joseph Seminary in New York. Uh, We've had him on the show numerous times. You can find him in our archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. He's well sought after in the field of medical ethics. And today we're talking about how we engage in discussion around this very contentious topic. How do we actually move the needle and make a difference? Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. And we're talking today with Dr. Charlie Camosi, who is a professor in the Medical Humanities Department at Creighton University of Health Sciences in Phoenix and a fellow in Moral Theology at St. Joseph Seminary in New York. He's also the author of multiple books that are well worth your time. Uh, Resisting the Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People, Beyond the Abortion Wars, a way forward for a new generation. And now you're also the editor of a new series that we began to talk about there at the end uh, called the Magenta series on New City Press that deals with finding the Catholic core that sits somewhere outside of the red-blue dichotomy. You can learn more about the Magenta Project by going to newcitypress.com slash magenta hyphen project. That's newcitypress.com slash magenta project. Uh, there you can see the books and keep up to date with all of the things that they have going on there. Now we're going to return to our conversation about the uh, the upcoming SCOTUS decision, the Supreme Court decision, that if all goes as we expect it to, will overturn uh, Roe versus Wade, returning the conversation of abortion away from the, the federal level and back to the state level. Uh, this, again, does not get rid of abortion, it simply changes the uh, the place where that discussion is being held. We're about to have to deal with new realities and, and potentially deal with some very upset people because the arguments about bodily autonomy that are being pushed our way are legitimate arguments. They simply don't rise to the level that trumps human dignity of the unborn. But the concerns that they have and the slippery slope that they fear, they are real concerns and ought to be treated as such. So how do we, with, with compassion for the person making the argument, also assert the dignity of the human person and the unborn? I don't think that I've seen the argument presented really well from the pro-life side. I see a lot of people talking about um, that the the unborn is a unique human individual, but I haven't seen the argument about the importance of human dignity and all the things that follow from that really presented well in a way that's understood by the other side. Yeah. And what, one thing that might be interesting to think, to meditate on before getting into that specific example is the debate over vaccine mandates, which I think was very interesting in terms of how it invoked bodily autonomy in reaction to a medical context. Um, I made the choice to get double vaxxed and get boosted. Um, I disagree with my fellow pro-lifers who think this is cooperation with evil of some kind. I respectfully disagree with them about that. Um, but I, do, I don't think they should be forced into um, uh, you know, putting bread on their table with their job and violating their conscience this mm -hmm. way. Um, I think they have the right to bodily autonomy to decide um, what to do uh, with their bodies in this context, what they want. I would urge them to get the vaccine. I'd make lots of arguments for them to do that. Um, I think they're wrong about the cooperation with evil, evil stuff. But ultimately, the, the importance of bodily autonomy is very important, um, especially for vulnerable populations who are at risk for having people with power over them. Uh, push them to do things they don't want to do. We see this with, as we talked about in the first segment, with um, intimate partner violence and abortion, right? You got a hookup or a boyfriend or, God forbid, a husband um, 
literally uh, using force to uh, push somebody to violate their bodily autonomy. That's, that's something we don't want, obviously. Now, abortion and pregnancy itself is just such a unique situation that it, uh, it puts, I, as, you, as you helpfully put it, I think, in the intro to this question, it doesn't rise to the level of bodily autonomy of being allowed to kill someone, right? That's, that's not what bodily autonomy allows for. That's, that's the big difference here. But if you can get into the head of someone, this is important for what we talked about in the first segment too, like how we're going to reach uh, the, the minds and hearts of people with, who disagree with us. We have to be able to get into their minds and hearts on this question and start with a very good value, right? And say, it's good to uphold bodily autonomy. It's good to start there. It's good to focus on that. But then it's also imperative that we say pregnancy involves two people and there's bodily autonomy for the baby. And, um, and, and that's, that's what makes it a, a very, very different kind of situation. I could say more, but I've been monologuing now for a bit. Well, no, I, I'm interested in the more here because you see a lot of terms being thrown around that are hyperbolic for the purpose of, of dismissing the pro-life argument. So they would go, uh, you know, we've heard the clump of cells, we've heard potential life, we've heard um, parasitic life. So th- this is something that, how do, we, how do we, who have a very strong and, and fervent opinion about the dignity of the human person from natural conception to natural death, how, how do we enter into or maybe allow for that discussion and, and clarify that discussion in a way that we can enter into the hearts and minds? How can we say, I agree with you on bodily autonomy, let's talk about this other piece, um, because those are some pretty hyperbolic and strong arguments. Yeah. Strong in the sense of uh, fervent. Well, in part because uh, I share a lot of uh, their points of view on social justice questions on other issues. I like to, to kind of uh, prick the social justice kind of conscience of my interlocutors who are pro-choice on this question, who make the kind of arguments about the baby or fetus in this question. I'd like to point out that one of the important, you know, very important central parts of throwaway culture is that it creates different language for vulnerable populations to get thrown away uh, to make it easier for us to throw them away. And we talked about this when we talked about resisting throwaway culture last time, right? It's much easier to talk about, you know, welfare queens or, you know, um, illegal aliens or something like that, because it allows you to put them in kind of this throw into this box that can just be uh, discarded, right? Well, we don't have to think about them. You know, we've labeled them, we put them in this box. We've used language that doesn't allow us to really, you know, inherit, um, inhabit their human reality. Uh, but that's what we do with, that's what you just described as the way that these folks describe the prenatal child, right? Like, clumps of cells, parasite, um, even the term fetus, I like to point out, is rarely used in kind of normal conversations about pregnancy, right? I mean, when my wife was pregnant with my three-year-old son, Thaddeus, three plus years ago, um, she never said, honey, honey, come quick, the fetus is kicking, right? right? She said, the baby is kicking. No one is with fetus. No one has a fetus up, up um uh, uh, shower party, right? <laughs> um, you know, these are, uh, you know, no one has a fetus bump, right? It's of course a baby bump. So, so even that, I even the use of the term fetus, I find problematic because it, 
it explicitly plays into throwaway culture where we say um, this individual, we use a certain kind of language when the, when the individual is wanted and we use a different kind of language when they're unwanted so we can discard them. Let me finish with this. I also like to talk about science because science really has revealed over the last few decades, especially that this is a fellow member of the species Homo sapiens. There's just absolutely no doubt about this question from a biological perspective. Even, you know, these heartbeat bills at six, week, six weeks get some criticism and some of them deserve it. But what they're not wrong about is that there is a four-chambered heart at six weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, six weeks after fertilization, there's a four-chambered heart pumping blood. That's just an extraordinary fact. Now, and, is, and, is it six yeah, weeks is it six weeks after fertilization or is it six weeks by the typical pregnancy count, which actually starts two weeks before? Uh, that is a, that is a question. I don't know. I just know that in the embryology textbooks, it's six to seven weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what, by what method those embryology books are counting, Yeah, but it's, it's an, it's extraordinary early time in pregnancy. And in fact, it's, well before rightly pointed out that it's often well before a woman even knows that she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. The baby already has a four chambered heart pumping blood. And you will see to your point about this, you know, the conversation that we have, you will see OBGYNs from major university hospitals around the country saying, no, 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 there's just like cardiac pulmonary vibrations or there's, (laughs) you know, you know, it's again, this kind of rhetorical trick to make the, individual easier to be discarded and and as as uh, a father who lost a child early on um several years ago we were devastated when the heartbeat was lower than it should have been and we you know it indicated the baby was likely going to going to not live so the, i mean science is just as as important a part about this uh discussion i think as just the kind of language we use as well and i, I liked your um your use of analogy. And I think that that's, I think it's in storytelling and not argument necessarily, uh, not argument as we tend to think of it today, where we can actually make a difference to talk about other types of, of human dignity being trampled upon in a way that we can then shine a light back onto this showing that we agree or, or we understand the kind of uh, demoralizing language that's used in, in terms of other throwaway culture populations uh, so that we can then, once we have that agreement, bring it, it's kind of the, the, the whole David and Nathaniel thing. Mm. Let me tell you about this, this man who stole a sheep, what should be done with that person? That man, King David, that man is you, right? To say, mm. let's, let's get to a point of agreement on the importance of protecting vulnerable populations. And then now let's take a look at this vulnerable population that you just agreed. It's important that we support vulnerable and protect vulnerable populations. And then we have to back it up by actually protecting vulnerable populations writ large. How about that? that, Right. Yeah. How about we be consistent in applying this? This is, this is where Catholicism as an intellectual tradition becomes so important, right? This is not just about political maneuvering. It's not about, trying to appease a certain kind of constituency in the, you know, um, early 21st century U.S. American context. This is about living out the Catholic faith. This is about having a principle and living it out. And uh, and one of my um, favorite philosophy professors as a philosophy major as an undergrad before I studied theology at the master's and PhD level 
um, told me something I'll never forget. A principal, Charlie, is is like a, a bus. It's not like a taxi. You have to follow it wherever it goes. You don't get to uh, tell your principal where it ends up. And that's what you just described, right? Like, if you really care about protecting vulnerable populations uh, prenatally, then we need to protect them postnatally, right? And that's not a criticism, like the kind of like, oh, pro-lifers are just pro-life before birth. That's just... That's a red herring. That's a political, again, a kind of political maneuver. But there is something to be said about like, what does it mean to follow the principles that we use for abortion consistently on other, on other topics for sure. Well, the idea that we are not, that we are Catholics and that we don't fit into political realities and that we're odd in that way. That's the thing that converted the Roman empire. Right, mm-hmm. because they didn't fit into any of their categories. That's the thing that ended the whole the whole process of exposing infants to the elements, was because we did things differently, and we didn't fit into anybody's categories. And I think that we have to return to that, and say we're going to think deeply about our principles because a lot of times we hold a principle uh, verbally, but we never really invest the attention into what that means. So we're going to think deeply about our Catholic faith. We're going to think deeply about these principles in such a way that they can inform us. And by being different, by not fitting in, maybe after several centuries of persecution, you know, as it did with the first time around, we're going to change society for the better. Um, and, and, and to not pretend that we're already facing that kind of persecution, because here in at least in the United States, we're not there. Um, but but yeah, to to resist throwaway culture on both sides of the aisle. The Didache, um, which is maybe the fir- the oldest non scriptural document we have from the early church, um, explicitly invokes Christian resistance to both infanticide and abortion, which it considered to be very similar. But in the same breath, it contrasted the way of life with the way of death, not only from that for the early Christians, but also resisting the unjust judges of the poor, right? And and being in solidarity with the poor. Um, So from our very beginnings as church, which we would expect nothing less um, if you're going to follow our Lord, right? Who was, of course, let the little children come to me, nonviolence at every circumstance, but uh, but obviously um, just had incredible... um, very sobering things to say about our duties to the poor. Um, You know, it's no surprise that a document like the Didache thinks the way of life um, as opposed to the way of death involves both protection of uh, little children and uh, being on the side of the poor. And that's, that's just in a nutshell um, where we need to live as Catholics. It seems to me. We've been talking today with Dr. Charlie Camosi, professor in the medical humanities department at Creighton university of health sciences in Phoenix, Arizona fellow in moral theology at St. Joseph Seminary in Dunwoody, New York, and prolific author. You can read his work on medical ethics, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality, Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People, and Beyond the Abortion Wars, A Way Forward for a New Generation. Uh, Dr. Kamosi has been with us on air multiple times. We've talked about those other books in previous episodes. You can find all of those episodes 
over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Just click the guest list, scroll down to the doctor section, find Dr. Charlie Camosi, and there just follow the links to listen to those previous episodes. This is also true of today's episode. If you missed any part of the conversation, you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, just go there to OutsideTheWalls.com, scroll through the guest list, find the name, and all the riches are there for you to go and enjoy over and over again. Now, if you do enjoy it over and over again, or you just really enjoyed it this time around, well, I've got good news. There's always more to the conversation available to those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we give them extra content each and every week, with the exception of last week, because I was out with COVID. We'll probably have an extra, extra segment this week just to kind of catch up. Uh, learn more about that support community and consider joining by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link there in the navigation bar. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking the catechism to scripture, to the fathers and doctors of the church, uh, to biblical commentaries, ecclesial documents, and so much more. Learn more at verbum.com. Our reading from scripture today comes from the, the first epistle of St. John, 1 John chapter 2. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That reading comes from the first epistle of John, 1 John 2, 1 through 11. Now, this is a challenging passage because it's very easy to look at this through a lens that says that, of course, we are the ones who walk in the light. Of course, we are the ones who are following after Jesus. Without question, we know this because we are holding to his commandments. These are the commandments that uh, that he's laid down for us. And so the fact that we are uh, following the church, we're following the, the scriptures, we are upholding the dignity of the human person, of course, we are the ones who walk in the light. But scripture is meant to be a mirror. It's meant to show to us those places where we still 
need to be conformed more fully into the likeness of Christ. And so St. John, as he is uh, exhorting the people, the recipients of this letter, he takes them and says, let's reevaluate that now. Yes, you are children of the light, and I, I write this to you so that you may not sin. Obviously, you, the audience of this, are uh, have been reconciled to the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ the righteous. Right. So this is the audience to, to whom he is writing, and then he reminds them, whoever says, uh, I know God, but doesn't keep his commandments, that person is a liar. But also, further down, he says that anyone who says, I love God, and hates his brother, whoever says he's in the light and still hates his brother, he is still in darkness. And so for us, as we're talking about the, the topic of disagreement, as we're talking about even fierce disagreement over questions of life and death, we still have to remind ourselves that the person to whom we are speaking is not our enemy. The person to whom we are speaking is a person who God created and loves and has uh, endowed with that same incomparable dignity that we are trying to uphold uh, and promote in the unborn. And so we have to approach these conversations uh, with, with clarity, with compassion, and certainly there's going to be some sense of, uh, of, of conflict that's there, but it can't be adversarial. It can't be such that we demonize uh, our, our interlocutor in the same way that we are trying to prevent uh, the unborn from being um, dehumanized. So as we are coming into these conversations, we should be looking to this passage of Scripture and asking ourselves, Am I walking in the light? Am I keeping the commandments, not only the, the, the big 10, but also the new commandment? This commandment that, as John reminds the readers, is still a very old commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Christ reframes it and says, love one another as I have loved you. And so as we look at this topic, it's one that we're very passionate about. We have very strong opinions about. For for many of us, it's one that we have fought for years over. And so we are right to be joyous at the possibility that this thing that has been a goal of ours for a very long time might be coming to pass. But in doing so, we can't become adversarial to those who disagree with us. We have to approach them in love and pray that God would bring about uh, their highest good as well and, and to uh, to bring us to a place where we come to an understanding and an agreement and that we promote their dignity as well as promoting the dignity of the unborn. Our reading from church history today comes from the commentary on the second letter to the Corinthians by St. Cyril of Alexandria. Those who have a sure hope, guaranteed by the Spirit that they will rise again, lay hold of what lies in the future as though it were already present. They say, outward appearances will no longer be our standard in judging other men. Our lives are all controlled by the Spirit now, and are not confined to this physical world that is subject to corruption. The light of the only begotten has shone on us, and we have been transformed into the Word, the source of all life. While sin was our master, the bonds of death 
had a firm hold on us. But now that the righteousness of Christ has found a place in our hearts, we have freed ourselves from our former condition of corruptibility. This means that none of us lives in the flesh anymore. At least not in so far as living in the flesh means being subject to the weaknesses of the flesh, which include corruptibility. Once we thought of Christ as being in the flesh, but we do not do so any longer, says St. Paul. By this, he meant that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He suffered death in the flesh in order to give all men life. It was in this flesh that we knew him before, but we do so no longer. Even though he remains in the flesh since he came to life again on the third day and is now with his Father in heaven, we know that he is passed beyond the life of the flesh, for having died once, he will never die again. Death has no power over him anymore. His death was a death to sin, which he died once for all. His life is life with God. Since Christ has in this way become the source of life for us, we who follow in his footsteps must not think of ourselves as living in the flesh any longer, but as having passed beyond it. St. Paul's saying is absolutely true that when anyone is in Christ, he becomes a completely different person. His old life is over, and a new life has begun. We have been justified by our faith in Christ, and the power of the curse has been broken. Christ's coming to life again for our sake has put an end to the sovereignty of death. We have come to know the true God and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Through the Son, our Mediator, who sends down upon the world the Father's blessings. And so St. Paul shows deep insight when he says, This is all God's doing. It is He who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ, for the mystery of the Incarnation and the renewal it accomplished could not have taken place without the Father's will. Through Christ we have gained access to the Father. For as Christ himself says, no one comes to the Father except through him. This is all God's doing then. It is he who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That reading again comes from the commentary on the second letter to the Corinthians by St. Cyril of Alexandria. And let us remember that one We have been reconciled, and we are new creations. We're new creatures. We don't have to respond in the same way that we did before. But filled with the Holy Spirit and walking out virtue, we can be compassionate. We can see the person and not the argument and seek their good. And as those who have been reconciled, find a way to connect with them, to encounter them, and to be ministers of reconciliation to them to draw them in as well to that place of belonging and that place of new life in Christ. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Eileen and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more and possibly join their number. Join us over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle is at OutsideTheWalls. Let's talk about it today. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.